like I said earlier, my name is Chris Wilson. I'm the pastor here. We're so glad that you're here. Um, most of you know, but just remember behind me on this wall out the door, there's some coffee and water. And then all the way back up the hall past the door where you came in uh, are the restrooms. Uh, they are having a, a Valentine's banquet for senior citizens through those double doors. If you go through there and it's a little bit chaotic, um, there you go. Maybe if you qualify, you got dinner plans. Just roll on over there. Um, but so if you go through those doors and it's a little loud or chaotic, uh, don't think that we're about to be overran by a youth group. They're here to serve the people of College Acres. Tonight we continue in Jonah. We're going to be in Jonah 1 verses 4 through 16. And I was getting ready um, for tonight and I was thinking about, man, how, how can we think through Jonah 4, 1, 4 through 16 really, really well? Um, I remembered one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, it's a reminder that at a certain point in his career, Jim Carrey not only made funny movies, but he made movies of consequence that had messages that mattered uh, beyond Dumb and Dumber being the most quotable movie maybe of all time. Um, there were two movies that Jim Carrey made for my money that stand outside of his uh, comedic genre uh, and really are profound in what they communicate. And I... I liked them. You can decide if you want to watch them or not. One was uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind uh, and the ramifications of what would happen if you had the ability to erase your memories, especially the painful ones. Profound movie. Um, you can decide based off of the rating and the reviews if you want to watch it. And the one that uh, brought me to tonight was The Truman Show. And The Truman Show was far ahead of its time and what it was communicating. I did find out this week that it's on Netflix. So if you're like, man, I've never seen The Truman Show and I want to watch it, and you've got Netflix, go give it a watch. It's definitely worth it. In the movie, Truman Burbank, played by Jim Carrey, lives an ideal life on Sea Haven Island where he works happily as an insurance salesman and is married to his lovely wife, uh, Meryl Burbank, who's played by Laura Linney. But what Truman doesn't know what you're aware of, but what he's completely unaware of, is that his entire life is the longest-running reality TV show in the world. From the moment he was born, he's been in front of the cameras, and all of his life has been orchestrated by the show's creator and director, Christoph, who's played by Ed Harris, who's also a phenomenal actor. I don't know why I decided to list the names of the actors and actresses in here, but I did. Maybe because the Oscars are in a few weeks. Christoph is the Truman Show creator, and he is the one who is responsible for all that Truman experiences in his life and in this fictitious world of Sea Haven Island. We, watching from the outside, watching the movie, and the TV audience who they occasionally go to in the movie are aware of this truth, that he is living a life that is being directed by someone else. Everything is not as it appears to Truman Burbank. We know that there is one who sits over everything orchestrating everything in Truman's life to play out for maximum TV enjoyment. The only person not aware of what all is going on is the one who's most directly affected. Truman Burbank has no idea, but as the movie goes on, he begins to have suspicions about what all his life is made of. And near the end of the movie, in the climactic scene, Truman is on a boat, and he is determined to get away from Sea Haven Island, to go out and see the world beyond. And as he makes his way out away from Sea Haven Island, Christoph, the director of the show, asks for a storm to be brought up on the sea. 
Truman keeps sailing, pushing through the storm, wanting to figure out what's out there. And as he keeps going, Christoph asks again and again for the intensity of the storm to be picked up. He wants Truman to give up and turn back to port. The show needs to continue. And at one point when the storm has reached its fever pitch, Truman looks to the sky and screams, Is that the best you can do? You're going to have to kill me. So it is, Truman points us tonight to the next episode in the life of Jonah. Jonah runs, the storm intensifies, and it seems as if everyone other than Jonah knows that it is Jonah's God who is causing the events around them to happen. And much like Truman raising his fist to the sky and screaming, is that the best you can do? You're going to have to kill me. Jonah, in a moment of resignation, says, just throw me over the side of the boat. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for all that you have given us in your word. We're grateful for stories about men like Jonah, stories that help us assess our own sinful desires and tendencies, stories that help us see your great mercy, story that, stories that help us see how you work through even our disobedience and even through the evil actions of others as scripture records you're able in your power to work through all of those instances to bring about your desired plans and purposes in our lives and in the world and the knowledge of that humbles us and we're grateful that even in part we could know these truths it's in Christ's name that we pray Amen. As I've dealt with this sickness, I've thought now's the time to go record an audio book or something. I've got a pretty sweet sounding voice. Still way too Southern to record an audio book. Who am I kidding? Um, I was going to read you Jonah 1, 4 through 16, but I'm just going to give you the Chris Wilson paraphrase. All right, so just stick with me. Here we go. You can read Jonah 1, 4 through 16, and at a certain point, this is all fairly self-explanatory. It could seem redundant if I read it and I then tried to explain it to you word for word. Most of you have the ability, I think all of you outside of maybe Burke, have the ability and Sawyer, you two probably are out of this. The rest of you can read and understand in plain English what the writer of Jonah is telling us in these verses. And this is it in my own vernacular and recap. Jonah is on the boat. The Lord sends a storm. There you go. It's pretty simple, right? The captain and the crew freak out. The ship shows signs of breaking apart. The crew in panic begins to throw cargo, begins to throw the very goods that they were hauling that were going to be their source of income. They're so panicked. They're so sure that they're going to lose their life that what would be their source of income to prolong their life gets thrown overboard to try to lighten the ship so that it doesn't break up. All the while, they are calling out to their gods with a little g for help. The captain goes below, kicks and wakes up a sleeping Jonah who has somehow managed to not wake up yet, and he begs him to call out to his God for rescue from the storm and that perhaps the lives of those on board would be spared. And the captain's language in the first few verses of Jonah 1, 4 through 16, the captain's language of arise and call out to your God is the exact same language that God used when he called Jonah to go to Nineveh. Arise, go to Nineveh, call out. 
The crew then, as Jonah sleepily stumbles his way up to the main deck to take in what is happening, the crew cast lots to determine who it is that's ultimately responsible for their current predicament. The lot falls on Jonah. Immediately he is peppered with questions about who he is and where he comes from and where his nation is and what his job is. And Jonah answers all their questions faithfully. He tells the crew where he came from. He tells the crew about the God it is that he fears. And he tells them that he is running from the Lord. And as Jonah shares this with the captain and crew, their fear increases. And they want to know what they must do to appease Jonah's God and be spared death. Jonah, in a moment of resignation to the inevitable, at least from his perspective, tells the crew to throw him overboard, and thereby the storm will relent. In one last futile attempt, in actually a great show of mercy, the crew tries to row back through the storm to get a little closer to land so that Jonah will have a puncher's chance to survive. It's an incredible show of mercy that they wouldn't look if we're in that situation and you come to me like toss me overboard and I think this will all go away. You're going. I'm not trying to take you anywhere nice. You're going right over because I want to live. But they try to take him back. And as they try to go back, the storm continues to intensify. And so the sailors in a moment of honest confession ask for the Lord's pardon over the life of Jonah and they pick him up. And they throw him overboard. And the storm subsides almost immediately, and the sailors sacrifice and make vows to Jonah's God. It all seems straightforward, right? But I'm convinced, and what I hope you'll see tonight, is that the main point of Jonah 1, 4 through 16 is not Jonah or the captain or the crew of the boat. If you think Jonah and the captain and the crew of the boat are the main points are the main actors in this section of Jonah, then we can ask questions about how the boat was constructed. We can ask about how Jonah was able to sleep through the storm. We can discuss the veracity of the lots and how the dice were constructed and what it meant to cast lots. And if we were to focus solely on Jonah and the crew and the captain, We could try to figure out, did the crew actually become believers by the end of Jonah 1.16? And we could question Jonah's motives in asking to be thrown overboard. Was it the resignation of a coward or was it a last-ditch effort to actually save the men who were not even responsible for the storm? And all those are questions that are there. They're questions that can be asked. But in all of those questions... This section of Jonah is silent about those things. It does not tell us how Jonah slept. It does not give us a clue into Jonah's mindset about being asked to be thrown overboard. It doesn't tell us about the ship. It doesn't tell us if Jonah took a really good narcotic and went to bed or if the Lord knocked him out. We don't know those things. But there's one theme that carries from Jonah 1.4 to the end of Jonah 1.16. And I believe that's where the author of Jonah wants our hearts and our minds and our eyes drawn to. And it's to look beyond all of this to the God who is orchestrating and directing all that these men are experiencing. 
The most commonly repeated words from Jonah 1, 4 through 16 bounce back and forth between the fear of the Lord, the God of heaven, crying out to these little G gods. The whole sweep of these verses is caught up in discussing, the author is writing, but it's a discussion on who really is the God who's in control of all things. Is it Jonah's God on the one hand? Or is it a whole host of other lesser gods on the other hand? And I think the author of Jonah in these verses wants us to see the divine supremacy, the sovereign might and power of the one true God. That's his goal, I believe. That's his aim. Remember, We read this this side of the cross, and so our natural inclination is we want to read it, and we want to kind of read Jonah, and then we're like, how can we quickly get to the cross? How can we we get from Jonah to Jesus in as short a time as possible? The writer of Jonah was not writing to get us from Jonah to Jesus in as quick a time as possible. He was writing into a moment in history so that those who heard and read the book of Jonah would be assured that there really was one God. There really was one sovereign creator and director of all of human affairs and all of the earth's affairs. And it was the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. So that's what I hope you'll see with me tonight as we look at these verses. And we're not going to go verse by verse. I gave you a synopsis, but I want us to try to focus in on and understand the author's intent to show us the supreme sovereignty of Jonah's God. The author states in Jonah 1-4 this, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up and later in chapter 1 verse 9 Jonah says this in response to the questions from the crew I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land why are these particular details included one of the things that makes us Good readers of the Bible is if we slow ourselves down enough to ask why certain things are there in the first place. Why are certain bits of information included? Why are certain bits of information withheld? Why does the writer of Jonah think it's important to tell us we live here now this side of the cross. We know that it was the Lord who caused the wind to blow, right? Like nobody in here has a real problem with saying it's the Lord who causes the wind to blow. So why does he include that detail in 1-4? And why is it that in 1-9, notice if you look just above that in Jonah 1-8, they say, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? Anywhere in the sailors questioning, did they ask if Jonah's God created things? Did they ask if Jonah's God created the land and the sea? They didn't care about Jonah's God's ability to create anything. They just wanted to know who he was and how they might be saved. How their life in the moment might be spared. I think the author of Jonah includes these details so that as we hear it, maybe back then or even as we read it today, 
we would realize that Jonah's God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of the law that was given to Moses, the God of David, the God of Solomon, the God of all the kings, the God of all the prophets, is the God who is sovereign over nature. And this is the testimony of all of the Old Testament to the world that Jonah inhabited. I did not put down all of the scripture references to all of the times that the Old Testament alone refers to God's sovereign control over nature. But I did include a few that particularly dealt with the water of all things. Psalm 33, 7, the psalmist writes and says, He, meaning God, gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Psalm 148, 7 through 8, the psalmist writes again, Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, fulfilling his word. Psalm 89, 8 and 9, the psalmist writes, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves arise, you still them. Jeremiah 10, 12 through 13. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there's a tumult of waters in the heavens and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. And that does not include time after time in the book of Job when God finally answers Job that God talks in great detail about his creation of the world, his sustaining of the world, his care for the world. And so all of the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament writers are writing about the one true God, the God who in Genesis 1 speaks all of the world into existence. They're writing about the truth of this God into societies and into cultures and into environments where there are not one or two gods vying for worship. There are gods upon gods upon gods being sought after, being prayed to, being sacrificed to, being extolled, being worshipped, all in hopes that these lesser, these smaller case G gods would hear and respond to their prayers. And over against all of that, the Old Testament sounds again and again the note that it is the God of Israel, the one true God who has created and who, has, who is sustaining and who is giving even the wind its direction and how to blow. This matters just as much for us now as it did for the Old Testament people of God then. Do we still believe in all of our technological advancements in the 21st century, in all of the ways that we can watch and understand the weather and they can give us a forecast, do we still believe that it is really God who makes the wind blow? Or have we resigned it to a scientific explanation that can take the desire of the wind to blow out of God's hands? Do we really believe that God has storehouses of snow and it is God who decides when the snow falls? 
Or is it that there has to be just the right amount of moisture and just the right amount of wind and just the right amount of ground temperature for the snow to fall? Or is it the sovereign decree of God that snow falls? Just as much as the Old Testament hearers of the word of God were challenged by all of the other gods competing for their attention, so too we are challenged to not rationalize away the sovereign control of God over all things. And it's easy for us to say that. It is hard for us to lean into and live that truth on a day-to-day basis. At the end of the day, we, just like the writer of Jonah, just like all those who have trusted God before us and those who by God's grace will trust in him after us, we believe that God created the world. Anybody got a problem with that? We can talk after. We believe God spoke and out of nothing he created the world. The world. As such, we would agree and affirm that God Himself created nature, right? The trees, the wind, the seasons, the sun, the moon, the stars, all of it. Nothing that was created came about without God's speaking it into existence. And if God creates it, then God is able to sovereignly use the weather and the rest of creation to achieve his eternal purposes. He did not create nature, the weather, and the physical world, and then hand it over to some group of lesser gods to manage while he went off and created another world somewhere else with more people to live. He wasn't franchising earth opportunities. Like, I'm going to create this earth, and then I've got some managers behind me. I'm going to let these managers run it. I'm going to go over here and create another earth. I'm going to put some people there, and then I'll let some other gods have a chance to rule and reign over this earth. No, he didn't set everything in motion and then hand it off. He has remained engaged. He has remained sovereignly in control of all things. And there has never been and there will never be another God who will ever for a moment take control of God's creation out of his hands. R.C. Sproul said, God is sovereign or he is not God. And so I ask again, how well do we really do leaning in to this? How well do we really do trusting in the sovereignty of God? Because so much of our life can be managed, can be programmed, can be handled, can be ordered without having to think in a moment that perhaps it is God who really is sovereign over all things. And so the writer of Jonah includes these words as a reminder to the Old Testament people of God then and to us now. There is only one God. There is only one divine, supreme, intelligent God who rules and reigns over all things, and it is the God of the Bible. There is no other. 
It is God the Father. It is God the Son. It is God the Holy Spirit. It always has been, and it always will be. And he, because he is the creator, has divine prerogative and the divine privilege to use his creation in the ways that he sees fit to achieve his divine eternal purposes. And we praise God for that. We praise God that he is not beholden to anyone else or anything else to determine how he can use his creation to achieve his glorious ends. He goes on and he says this in Jonah 1.14. The sailors have had their moment. They've tried to get Jonah back to land. And this is what it says in Jonah 1.14. Therefore they, meaning the sailors, called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Again, we have to pause. and say, why, why, does, why does the author of Jonah care to include what a bunch of unbelieving sailors have to say about Jonah's God? Why have this line in there? Just get us to the point that they throw him overboard because we're ready to see the fish swallow the guy, right? We're like, come on, man, knock this stuff out. But what we have here, not from God's prophet, mind you, but from the pagan sailors, is an admission and a submission to the sovereign rule of God in all things. You do not have to trust in the God who is sovereign over all things, to eventually see that he is sovereign over all things. Mere mental adherence to the sovereignty of God does not mean that you believe and trust in the God who is sovereign. Because there's no indication that the sailors trusted him. They made sacrifices and they made vows, but for all we know, that was just to include him in the pantheon of gods they already worshipped and they were already trying to appease. Mere mental assent to the sovereignty of God does not guarantee that your heart has been changed by the God who is sovereign. But the author of Jonah puts, us, puts this in here so that we would see that even in certain moments, unbelievers, pagans, those who would never dare enter into the temple of God to worship the God of the Bible can be brought to a moment of realization that every other God that they serve is paying, playing second fiddle to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Those at the beginning of the storm were crying out to their little g-gods for assistance now acknowledge the supremacy of Jonah's God. This language about God doing as he pleases is found three other places in the Old Testament. I want to read those to you now. Psalm 115, verses 1 through 8. Pay attention as we read these. See what the compare and the contrast is. Psalm 115, 1 through 8. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear and noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel and feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. 
Again, the psalmist in Psalm 135, verses 5 through 7 and 15 through 18 says this. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 46, 5 through 10. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose what is the ongoing compare and contrast in all three of those sets of verses that there is a god in heaven who does what he pleases and every other god is an idol fashioned after the making of human hands there is a god in heaven who does as he pleases and it is either submission to him or crying out to a god that cannot and will not answer you defend you fight for you save you or otherwise take into account your well-being there is a god who is in heaven who does whatever he pleases and if you will not worship him you will give your life worshiping something that will in the end make you unable to speak unable to move unable to do the things that god would have you to do There is a God who is in heaven who does whatever he pleases. And oftentimes that can feel like it is the last thing in the world we want our God to be able to do, to do whatever he pleases. But the good news is, is that in doing whatever he pleases, it pleased him to crush his son on our behalf. You can have a God who sits in heaven and does whatever he pleases, or you can have no God. That is the testimony of the Old Testament that drives us forward into the new. He is God in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases, and even pagans realize it. But pagans won't worship him for it. Pagans will clench their fist and rage against the sky rather than bow their knee to a God who sits in heaven and does whatever he pleases. The redeemed of God will bend their knee in grateful praise and honor to the king who sits on the throne and does whatever he pleases. This is a decision we make every day. Will we allow ourselves to submit? Will by grace we submit to the God who sits in heaven and does whatever he pleases? And if he's going to do whatever he pleases, here's what really frustrates us about it. He doesn't know us an explanation for why he does it. Ever. 
if he so chooses. Go back and read the end of Job. He never tells Job why he let it happen, ever. If God is going to sit on his throne and do as he pleases, that often means that our faith will be stretched and we will live with, a, so we will live with more mystery than we are comfortable with. So much more mystery than we're comfortable with. And if we're honest, if I'm honest, that's the appeal of Reformed theology, is it feels like it can take all the mystery out of God. But it can't. Just like we talked about last week, knowledge of God is meant to lead us to the heart of God. If your theological constructs and your way of processing life before the God who created the heavens and the earth is always an attempt to take all mystery out of how he ordains and orchestrates your life and the world around you. If your sole goal in life is to remove the mystery of who God is, you're really after an idol that is made in human, by human hands. You're after a God that can't answer you. You're after a God that can't defend you. You're after a God who you should not trust to see you safely through this life as a believer. If your whole goal in life is to remove the mystery of God's sovereignty from your God, then you don't want the God of the Bible. You want something that you're creating in your own image and in your own likeness. And we, should, we would do well to heed the end of 135.18. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Brian Estelle, in his commentary on Jonah, says that these three verses, Isaiah and the two Psalms, overlap with Jonah 1.14 and make the point that worshiping any other God besides Yahweh is futile. Moreover, his power stretches to every corner of creation. In the heavens and the earth, the Lord does whatever pleases him. Now we begin to understand that maybe Jonah 1, 4 through 16 is so much less about Jonah and the crew and the boat. And perhaps it's more about the God who's orchestrating all those events in the first place. Because the God we worship will crush all idols under his feet. And every knee will bow under the weight of his glory when he appears. To trust in idols and to worship other gods is in the end a fool's errand that leads to death. As we close our time tonight, we are left, I believe, to wrestle with the question of, is our God really this big? Is he really that powerful? And is he really that sovereign? How we answer these questions really, I believe, ultimately determines how we understand our salvation, how we understand our suffering, how we rejoice in our hope, how we do the work God has called us to, and how we will ultimately face our death. You cannot answer those questions well unless you're willing to wrestle with the truth of God's sovereignty. If you don't wrestle with the truth of God's sovereignty, you'll never fully understand how you got saved in the first place. And if you're lucky, you'll go your whole life and never really understand it, and you'll just be really grateful that he did. If you don't wrestle with the truth of God's sovereignty and that the Lord is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases, you'll never make sense of suffering. 
You'll never make sense of the prayers that go unanswered. You'll never make sense of the heartache and the pain that greet us around every corner of our lives. If you don't wrestle with the question of God's sovereignty, your hope will not grow. Your hope will shrink and shrivel. Until you become one who professes to trust in a sovereign God, but whose life is marked by a despair and a hopelessness that comes from not knowing and wrestling with the sovereign Lord. And lastly, if we will wrestle with God's sovereignty, we'll find ourselves better prepared to face our death. Because God is sovereign over your life. God is sovereign over when you took your first breath. God is sovereign over when you'll take your last breath. We want to read the scriptures. Don't hear me tonight and leave going, well, I guess we don't have to worry about reading the scriptures because I want some mystery in my life. No, read the scriptures. There'll still be plenty of mystery, I promise. We want to read the scriptures. We want to study the scriptures well. We want to be saturating our minds and our hearts in the scriptures so that as God is gracious to us, we would gain understanding. We want to ask the spirit inside of us, the same spirit that inspired these words to be written, to give us understanding. And we want to encourage one another as we seek to answer these questions for ourselves. So my prayer for us tonight is that the mystery of how God works sovereignly, even while we maintain responsibility for our own actions, and God who rules with power in all things. Let me reword that. Hold on. My prayer is this, that the mystery of how God works sovereignly, even through our actions and our own responsibility for our actions, and the mystery of how God rules with power in all things would not cause our hearts to become cold, unfeeling, and shriveled. Rather, may it draw true heartfelt worship out of us as we acknowledge with humble and loving hearts the beauty contained in the mystery of our great God and King. Let's pray.